You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. I've read from people, men in particular, say that your book has been really transformational for them. Um, I even read a number of comments that said things like, this book has saved my marriage. I hear people say I've saved their lives. So I, I got an email wow. just the other day, said that a guy was going to commit suicide and that night before, and he 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 put on my on his headphones and turned my book up full blast and just went to sleep. And he wrote me in the morning. He said, "Thank you, you saved my life." So, yeah, I, I and that, that's gratifying to know that that um, the the book and 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 the rest of my work is transformational for people. I'm I'm, I'm glad to know that. I, I like hearing it. Why do you think that perhaps it resonates with people? That's a good question. And and I, I the first thing that would come to mind is because, you know, especially in my first book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, I'm a recovering nice guy. I, I wrote that book while I was in the depth of my own work. I, I was in therapy. I'd gone to 12-step groups. I was in men's group. And I was a therapist. And I, I, I started, you know, noticing a lot of my clients that were coming to me. I was a marriage therapist by training. And these guys were coming and saying the same things I was saying in my life and relationship. I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. You know, I do everything for her, but it's never good enough. She's never happy. She's always in a bad mood. She never wants to have sex anymore. I thought I can finish their sentences for them. <laughs> and, and then there was the single guys that were saying, and I, I was in relationship at the time, so I couldn't really relate to them quite as well. But the single guys were saying, you know, I have lots of female friends. They all tell me what a great guy I am. I'm such a nice guy. I listen to them talk about their problems. I listen to them talk about the jerks that they keep going back to, but none of them want to be my girlfriend. There's oh, some lucky woman, you know, be so, so, so lucky to have you someday, but they don't want to be my girlfriend. How come, how come they say they want a nice guy, but they don't want me, you know? So the single guys were saying that. And so I realized I wasn't the only person following a paradigm, a roadmap, a, an internal map of the world about myself and the world that if I'm just a good guy, if I treat everybody well, you know, if I don't make any mistakes, if I'm generous and caring and, and avoid conflict, then I'll be liked and loved and get my needs met. And I'll have a perfectly smooth life. And it, it didn't work that way. And it didn't work that way for my clients who were coming, you know, the same complaints I had about, about especially about relationship, but other areas of life as well. So I, I started uh, 30, almost 30 years ago, my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. We started meeting every other week. I just started writing little lessons to give to them. And, and the guys and often their wives and girlfriends kept saying, Robert, you should write a book. You should go on Oprah. This could be a bestseller. There's a lot of people that need it. So, so I, I think why the book resonates is because I wrote about my own journey, my, my, own, my own process, while I was also then working with a lot of other men on a similar journey, a similar process. And what I realized is that there's, at that time, like I said, this was 25 plus years ago, the book has been out in print now 20 years this month february 2003 it came out and um and and the book keeps growing and expanding my royalty checks keep getting bigger i get more and more emails it's translated in more and more languages and so i when i when i wrote the book i think there were already a lot of men who could relate to this thing they've been raised to be different from their fathers they'd listen to women complain about all the bad men out there they try to be good guys they they'd listen to their mothers complain a lot so they'd been trained to be these passively pleasing uh approval seeking don't rock the boat don't only want one thing from women, you know, like, <laughs> oh, he only wants one thing, you know, the sex word. So, you know, there's a lot of guys, at least in my generation and a little bit younger. So, you know, this was like 30 years ago. But since that time, I think we've had at least two or three more generations of young boys being trained to, to be nice guys. And now, you know, the term they use is simp that, you know, uh, you know, it, it, 
it's it's the guy that you know is trying to always get approval and you know try to get girls to approve of him by being nice and doing things for him. So I think the reason why it resonates is that more and more men and young men and boys have been raised to to believe it wasn't okay to be masculine, to be male, to be sexual, to make their needs a priority, to be assertive. They were taught to be passive, be pleasing, seek approval, hide your sexuality, hide your wants and needs, and go along to get along. And and so I, I just think a lot of men in today's culture can relate to it because so many men have been trained to be nice guys. And um, and again, as I said, world, when, when I was shopping the book 25 years ago to a publisher, to publishers, a lot of editors said, Robert, we like the book, it's well written, but our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book. And that was probably pre-Amazon or, you know, right at the beginning of Amazon. But, you know, nowadays you, you probably put links in your, in your podcast for, you know, books and guys will go go to Amazon. They'll, they'll click that link. And, you know, people who bought this book also bought this book and this book. So they buy more. But, you know, and, and you were even saying before we started recording that, that, you know, well over half of your audience is primarily men. And that's not always been the view of things. When I started my private practice as a marriage and family therapist, it was the women dragging their boyfriends and husbands into counseling and therapy. By the time I left private practice 15, 16 years ago to, to move to, to Mexico and work online, it was the men dragging their wives or girlfriends into relationship therapy and counseling. So there's been a significant shift where men really now are interested, and maybe the internet's helped that. You know, we're big consumers of information. We can get it easily on the internet in lots of different forms. So I, I'm actually excited. I'm excited to live in a world where, where men now can actually, you know, go out and get good information, get coaching, get therapy, get groups, get programs to um, not become better or different, but, but to become more themselves and to, to be empowered to live, you know, the life that they were meant to live. Now, as you and I were talking, there's a lot of crappy information out there as well. Maybe we can dive into that. But um, so that's why I think people relate. Guys are looking for information. They've been told what not to be all their life. Don't be like your father. Don't be like the bad men. Don't, don't be an asshole. Don't be a sinner. Don't be, you know, only have one thing on your mind, but they don't know what to be There's what not to be. And so I think men are looking for answers. What, what, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be me? And so I, I think no more Mr. Nice Guy helps provide some of those answers. Yeah, man. And there's so much good stuff in there. And a number of uh, women friends that I have, when I was chatting to them, as well as like going through some of the reviews to the book, um, it seemed like a lot of women kind of said, there's so much good stuff in your book um, that are not just that are obviously there's a lot of stuff in there that is um, primarily, I would say, good for men. But there's also a lot of stuff in there that are also helpful concepts for women. Yeah. Um, what would you kind of say that? How would your kind of reason yeah. be to that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I hear that, too. Um, you know, when, when I when I wrote the book. You know, like I said, I was a therapist and then I was in, in my own doing my own personal work in therapy. And, and um, you know, and I, I was reading the self-help books that were out there at the time. And the majority were written for women, kind of like the editors yeah. at the publishing houses said, well, no, <laughs> we, we only publish self-help books for women because they're the ones who buy them. Men won't buy them. And um, and what I realized there just wasn't anything for men, especially around the, the area of codependency. Now, if you if you notice in the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, I don't ever use the word codependent, but that's what nice guy syndrome is. It is codependency or another term for codependency is borrowed functioning. I only exist or have value or have meaning in relationship to you. Right. I only have value if you think I'm I'm valuable or I only have value if you have needs that I can help you with. That's codependency, borrowed functioning. And at that time, most of the books about codependency, maybe all of them were either directed at like family members, partners, children of alcoholics, of addicts. And that's where the word originally came from. It came out of the addiction community. There were some books for women, women who love too much, some other books like that that were written for female codependents, but nothing for men. So I did not use the word codependency on purpose because I wanted to write to men without them getting a predetermined concept of what this thing was that I was addressing them. I didn't want them to hear a word and go, oh, 
I'm not codependent. You know, I'm not a woman or I'm not in a relationship with an addict, but, but it is still the same dynamic. Again, it's that borrowed functioning dynamic. Um, and so I would say that probably 80% of the book is, is applicable to anybody, men, women, and not just even nice guys. I, I, I went back mm-hmm. to New York, been about five years ago now. When the book first came out, the publisher you know, put out an audible version of it, audio version, and they hired like a professional voice to do it. And, um, and everybody kept saying, Robert, how come, how come you didn't record it? Well, they, they, they didn't choose me to record it. And, um, and, 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 and that voice mispronounced, I talk about covert contracts and, you know, that might be an interesting thing to dive mm. into. He called them covered contracts. throughout. The <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, about five, six years ago, I told my agent, listen, the contract's up. I want to read the book, cancel the contract with that company. And they got back to me and they said, we want you to come read it. We'll pay you to come to New York to read it, blah, blah, blah. And we'll give you this advance. So, so I went to New York five, six years ago. And while I was reading it again, you know, and you got to pay a lot of attention while you're reading it for an audible version. The, the thought that hit me was this isn't just for men who are too nice, too passive. It really is a book for every man that wants to live an authentic, integrated, uh, powerful life. And that's true for women as well. You know, it's not gender specific. Yeah, there's a few things I talked to in there, like, you know, men's tendency towards porn or masturbation or things like that. Um and, and just, you know, kind of a masculine dynamic in, in relationship. But m- when the book first came out, I, my publishers, I think, were hoping for a little bit of blowback from women, a little controversy. Oh, he's written this book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, you know, and that the people might, you know, kind of, oh, what's that about? He's teaching men to be assholes. You know, we don't need a book to teach more men to be not nice. But there wasn't. There wasn't ever any kind of blowback. And, and probably in 20-something years, maybe. I've gotten 10 email from women that were pissed off at me, maybe 10. (laughs) And those women, it was obvious they had not read the book. The majority of those emails were that their husband or boyfriend read the book and left them. And they were (laughs) mad at me because they they thought I caused that to happen. And and usually (laughs) it's these really long emails on and on and on about how evil I am and how I put evil. And I'm thinking about those men, run, run quickly, (laughs) run as fast as you can. So, but the majority of women that write me say one of two things. They either say, you know, I can really relate to everything you talk about. It's helped me to understand myself better and and my codependency and my giving to get and my not making myself a priority or not having good boundaries. And the, the other emails I get are from women that say, thank you. You, you helped me understand my husband or often you helped me understand my ex, you know, better. And I get, I get emails from mothers and say, do you have any suggestions for, I've, I've got a, you know, 15 year, 16, 17 year old boy and his girlfriend's already walking all over him and he's already being passive. And what can I do? And, and so, you know, most of the emails I get from women are, are just very supportive of the process because, you know, I'm not teaching men to be assholes. I'm not teaching men to be jerks. I'm teaching men to be authentic, to be honest, to, to, to make their needs a priority, to have good boundaries, to, 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 to live up to their full potential. And, you know, in general, most women that want to be in a relationship with a man want that kind of man. And so, you know, the response has been positive from women. And like, like you said, and like I said, a lot of women say, they get they get a lot out of it personally. If we kind of go through the concepts, sure. um, um, one of the, the major concepts is, as you describe it, is nice guy syndrome. And one of the interesting things to me is um, a lot of people that like when I speak to about this, they say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like um, like the fish that doesn't know he's in water. When I hear that concept, there's a part of me that really resonates. I, I read so many different people say similar things like, you know, this really, really resonates with me. Um, so I would love to know kind of perhaps what is this nice guy syndrome and where does it come from? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I get a lot of that same feedback. Men will write me, women too. They'll say, I have guys say, I've read every self-help book out there, but it wasn't until I read this that it all clicked. And then the reason it clicked is because, yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, the fish doesn't know some water when you like me, when I was trying to be a nice guy, I didn't, I couldn't understand why everybody didn't think the same way I thought, you know, why wasn't everybody trying to be kind and generous and, and, and that. So 
how I distinguish what I call a nice guy, capital N, capital G, from a decent human being, from, from just a good guy, right, is that the nice guy has internalized some core beliefs about himself. And, and I say that he inaccurately internalized these core beliefs as a young child, as, as an infant. And I'll kind of just back up a little bit. You know, when, when every one of us is born, we're completely helpless. We're completely dependent. We're completely needy. We need our parents to pay attention to us and meet our needs in timely and, and consistent ways. And that never happens perfectly, even if we have really good parents. I mean, you know, our ancestors are, are, were all raised by a tribe of people. Now, children are being raised by maybe two, often just one parent. And, and one or two parents really aren't equipped to, to meet all of a child's needs. And it, it really does take a tribe. But we no, we no longer have even extended family. It used to be two or three generations of a family would live in the same house. And so aunts and uncles and cousins would all be involved in the, the raising of a child. So every child experiences, well, I'll just call it an abandonment. They have abandonment experiences where where they don't get their needs met in a timely, consistent way. Maybe they're hungry and they don't get fed right away. Maybe they're they're cold and they don't get wrapped up. Maybe they're they're, they're sick or they have stomach ache or they're crying and nobody hears them. Or maybe even worse, maybe they get neglected. Maybe they 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 get abused. Maybe, maybe they get spanked or hurt or shaken. You know, it, it ranges all the way from inadvertent, um, less than perfect parenting to, to abusive parenting. Now, the, one, the thing I learned like, like first day in child development 101 in graduate school was that for a child, abandonment feels like death. And so every time a child does not get their needs met in a timely, consistent way, it feels like they're going to die. Now, they don't think that. It's an emotional reaction. The thinking brain of a child doesn't develop till years later. You know, it starts getting online about two years old. But for us men, our prefrontal cortex doesn't finish developing to about age 25. That's why, at least in the U.S., car insurance for young men goes down to about age 25. <laughs> they quit doing such stupid stuff. Um, but that's just because the prefrontal cortex finally is wired up. But at birth, the amygdala, just a, a little part kind of down to the brain stem right here that, that regulates respiration, heartbeat, is part of the fight, flight, freeze. It's, it's all about survival. That's the animal part of our brain that is fully online when a child is born. And the, the theory is that part of the brain is it's no bigger than your little fingernail. It's wired into every other part of the brain. It's hardwired into all of our sensory perceptors, our eyes, our ears, taste being the most profound smell. Actually, smell is more profound than taste. So it's kind of like it's it's the operating system. It's the machine language of the entire brain. And that is fully online when we're born. And it, it internalizes emotional memory, not words, not pictures, but emotion. And it, and it triggers that fight, flight, freeze, that survival mechanism. So every child gets that part of their brain triggered. And it feels bad. It feels bad when the amygdala is, is agitated. So what a child does with very primitive life skills and no thinking ability is that it, the child is narcissistic by nature and it believes it is the cause of those things. And then what happens, they internalize what's called toxic shame. I must be bad. There must be something wrong with me, especially if they get told that or get hurt, you know, as they grow up, they internalize that. And, and everybody does. Everybody has some degree of toxic shame inside. And so what happens for little children, every little child, is because they believe there's something wrong with them, they, they, they try to do whatever they can to do two things. Number one, to try to regulate the uncomfortable feelings they're feeling. And number two, to try to prevent them from happening again in the future. Now, again, that's just real primitive stuff. I sucked my thumb till I was in kindergarten. So my sucking my thumb was a way to regulate, regulate my uncomfortable feelings. Some children eat a lot, some cry a lot, some wet their diapers, some become needless and wantless, some become aggressive, oppositionally defiant. And so this is what happens to every child on the planet to, when they deal with those internalized beliefs, I must cause this discomfort. And so there's a grandiosity. I cause it, maybe I can fix it. And that's where nice guy syndrome tends to come in. If I'm just needless and wantless, these things won't happen. Or if I try to just be good, or if I try to make mom happy or make dad happy. Again, as the child is developing, this these ideas become more part of thought and more complex. So 
For nice guys, what they're doing is they're carrying a survival paradigm that's, used, that's really built around two things. And again, this is pre-thought. It's, it's kind of hard to explain it because if there's no words for it, we think, well, how did we think it? But it's just survival, pure survival. So one of the survival tools that nice guys have is they try to become what they think other people want them to be, to be liked, to be loved, to get their needs met. They become chameleons. You know, I won't be me, I'll, you know, like if I was doing, you know, if I was doing an interview with you, I, you know, as a nice guy, what, what, what do you want me to say? You know, what, 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 what would it get your approval or what would your audience like to hear? So that, that would be, I got to become what others. So whether this is becoming where our parents want us to be, our siblings, our teachers, priest, preacher, rabbi, you know, when we're adolescents, what, what we want the opposite sex to think of us, there's no us in there. We're trying to become what we think other people want. That's the only way a nice guy thinks they can be loved, liked, and get their needs met. The second thing that nice guys do, again, without really thinking about it, it's very covert, very unconscious. The second thing is to hide anything about them that they think might get a negative reaction. And so that's why nice guys tend to, nice guys tend not to be particularly honest, even though we think we, we are, because we're hiding everything. Uh, our, our, and the two things I found that nice guys, especially guy, men, nice guys hide the most is their needs and wants. I'd say that's true for, for nice girls as well but especially their sexuality, because it, we live in a culture where we're bombarded with sexual stimuli, but told that, you know, oh, sex is bad, sex is evil, sex is dirty, you know, don't, don't, be, don't, don't be that. So nice guys I find when I work with them as adults are not very good at getting their needs met or asking for what they want or receiving. And they usually have a lot of hidden sexual behavior because of the, of the toxic shame that says I'm bad for being sexual. But that hidden sexual energy has to come out. Sexual energy is the life force of the cosmos, right? Everything procreates. And so when you try to repress that basic life force, it, it can't be repressed. It's still going to manifest. And it's why you, if you've spoken with very many men, you'll find that most men, and especially most nice guys, have issues around pornography, masturbation, other hidden affairs like prostitution, going to massage parlors. It's like that sexuality is going to get expressed. But if you think you got to keep it hidden and repressed, it's going to get expressed in pretty, pretty dark, hidden or covert kind of ways. So that's the men that I work with, the men that are trying to be good, trying to get approval, trying to avoid conflict, trying to avoid rocking the boat, going along to getting along, hiding the things about them that might get negative reaction. And then they're out there in the world thinking, well, how come I don't get my needs met? How come the people I want to like me don't like me? How come I can't get a girlfriend? How come my wife's angry all the time? You know, and, and she says she can't trust me. That's the thing that, that, that I, I hear a lot from women about their nice guy partners. I can't trust him. And it's true because the nice guy's a chameleon. He's not being mm -hmm. real. He's not being authentic. He's not being honest or transparent. So those are the guys that I write about and work with. And that's me. Nice guys, they're afraid of taking social risks. They're afraid of being authentic. They're afraid of saying anything that rock the boat, rocks the boat. And one of the things, as you were describing it, I was getting crystal clear uh, nostalgia back to my high school days. And I certainly had this experience of hearing other people talking about being friend-zoned. Uh, you know, yeah. wondering, you know, why was it that guy, uh, not him, or, or being broken up with by a woman and the woman saying, look, you know, uh, it's not you, it's it's, it's me, um, <laughs> you know, or, or all these other things. Or, or hearing, even worse, being, you know, in this friend zone with women and the, you know, and, and the woman describing to the guy, you know, if only I could find a guy like you and the guy's thinking, but, you know, but I'm a guy, yeah, not me. I'm a guy. guy like me, you know. But then the guy that she says that she wants is not the guy that she ends up with. She ends up with, uh, here we have, you know, a lot of rugby players or, or you know, uh, suit of athletes or someone that treats <laughs> so, a party. So we're going to put rugby players in that category. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, not all rugby players are all rugby players, of course. I know not a lot of good ones. I played rugby for some time. Um, but, you know, not, uh, but yeah, but there's a kind of a contrast between typically, I think, uh, I hope some guys they listen to this can, can comment below if you've had this experience of what a woman says she's attracted to and then what she's actually attracted to 
Do you do you have any kind of is is that right in some ways, perhaps? Oh yeah, that that is probably the number one nice guy complaint. You know, mm. women say they want a nice guy, and I'm I'm the nice guy. But I get <laughs> I get I think when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, I don't know if the term friend zone existed yet, right? Um, but yeah, I hear that a lot. And and after I got divorced in my late 40s, and I got divorced from my second marriage about the time No More Mr. Nice Guy came out, I, I had to learn how to date for the first time in my adult life in my late 40s. And in the process, I, I got good enough at it. My client said, Robert, teach us. What, what are you doing? I go, I'm not, I'm not a dating coach. And I've ended up since then writing two books about dating, about conscious dating. But a, a statement that I make, in, especially in my dating material, is that women don't put us in the friend zone. Women don't put a man in the friend zone. A man puts himself in the friend zone. And so we, we have to own that. Now, so, but the guy saying, well, women say, you know, they, they want a nice guy, but they go for the rugby players, right? They go for the jerks. They go for the guy that cheats on them with their best friend, that steals their money, that, you know, lies to them, that treats them badly. So, and, and you know, so we have a hard time understanding that. Number one, why me being a nice guy doesn't make them like me if they say they want a nice guy and guys all the time say is she lying because she says she wants a nice guy but she keeps hanging out with the jerk so here's the issue and i'm going to make some generalizations and so you know take them for what they work but throughout human history we've been tribal and 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 the men of the tribe pretty much were responsible for providing and protecting. They, they were the hunters, the warriors, and the women of the tribe were, were often pretty vulnerable. They, they were slower, not as strong, you know, pregnant, carrying kids around, tending to older people. So they were, they were a lot more vulnerable. And so our ans the our female ancestors for million, million and a half years were used to being around strong men, the men that got shit done and got it done masterfully. And prior to religion coming along, an organized religion has only been around about 6,000 years. And prior to that, sex was never considered a bad thing. In fact, in most early religions, sex was part of the worship process. It's only been more of the um, Judeo-Christian religions, Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity, that turned sex around and said, it's bad, it's evil. Um, and so sex was used to manipulate people and people and, and people had to start hiding their, their sexuality. But prior to that, the women grew up were, were for a million, million and a half years, females evolved around highly sexual men. Um, all evidence pretty much points to early in human existence that that, you know, Mother Nature liked lots of penises and lots of vaginas. The idea of monogamy, you know, just one man, one woman for life. Mother Nature does not like that. That, that. that is terrible for genetic diversity. Plants don't do it. Animals don't do it. Only we humans are trying to do it and, and still not succeeding very well at it. But so here's the thing. What if it is part of female evolution to, to be just inherently drawn and attracted to something of something fierce, something strong, something powerful? something competent, something masterful, something that doesn't give that many fucks about the woman. They're, they're out there doing what the, the men did. And I, I know that sounds kind of almost caveman-ish or patriarchal, but it's still part of our human evolution. And so now nice guys are actually fucking with human evolution. They've actually become passive and pleasing. And, and the term I use is most men, especially young men nowadays, are raised to just kind of hang out in the nursery, seeking female approval, playing video games, watching TV, surfing the internet, jacking off to porn, all the things that require absolutely no challenge from them whatsoever. And most men have no masculine initiation to learn how to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable, to learn how to live with an appropriate fierceness, to, to be the kind of person that could be a provider, protector, a hunter, a warrior. Now, again, I'm not saying we all got to go out and hunt animals or go to war or or be an asshole or be abusive. I'm not I'm not teaching that at all. But what I'm saying is, whenever a man represses anything about himself, and it is usually his wants, his needs, his fierceness, his sexuality, the part of him that 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 you know would fight for what is right. Um, that would kill if necessary to protect 
that which he loves. If that all gets repressed, what is there to turn a woman on? And especially if a guy's repressed all of his sexuality. And, you know, if a guy's trying to be nice, I call it using nice guy seduction. The typical nice guy were simp. You know, if he wants a girl or woman to like him, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be nice to her. I'll listen to her talk about her problems. I'll listen to her talk about the jerk that she can't quite leave or get over. Um, I'll do things for her. I'll, I'll, I'll buy her things. I'll pay her car payment. You know, I'll fix things. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do that. All these nice guy seduction. If she, and then she'll see I'm a really good guy and she'll want to be my girlfriend. And if I, especially if I hide my sexual agenda from her, so she doesn't think I'm a bad man, then she'll want to take her clothes off. Now, mm. There's no logic to that, but nice guys aren't always logical. If I hide my sexual agenda, she'll want to have sex with me. But but no, the op that's where I say men put themselves in the friend zone. If you're trying to be different from the bad men you heard your mother complain about, you heard women complain about, you're trying to be different from your father, you know, you're, repre you know, you're repressing everything about you, trying to be that, that just passively pleasing guy. You know, you spend most of your time on the internet, watching TV, smoking dope, drinking, you know, whatever, that nothing that requires anything of you, there's nothing about you that's going to make a woman hot, to make her wet, to make her go, hmm, yeah. I'd like some of that. And that's 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 the 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 thing that, that bad boys trigger in women. Again, it's not because they're attracted, and some women are attracted to men who treat them bad. Maybe if they had, you know, an asshole father or they've been abused, they actually are turned on by men that treat them badly. Just like a lot of nice guys are turned on by women that treat them badly and stick around. But what the woman is really wanting is just something fierce, something strong, something masterful, something that um as, as the Sheryl Crow song says, you man enough to be my man. You know, so the, the, the woman wants a man that's at least got as much of a backbone and balls. My, my, my wife is Mexican and she talked about her huevos. So she'll say her huevos are bigger than mine. But she said, but I never want to feel like I'm stronger than you. The truth is she is. She grew up in poverty in Guadalajara, Mexico, eight out of 10 kids. She learned to fight. She learned to be tough. I grew up white bread in the suburbs of Seattle, Washington, with a bunch of Boeing engineer families. You know, I never had to fight for anything. She's tough. She's a gym rat. She works out two hours a day in the gym. I sit in front of a computer and make people's lives better. You know, and, <laughs> and she, she is strong. She's tough. But as she says, I don't want to ever think my balls are bigger than yours. I, I want to be with a man who can match my strength. And I find I talk to a lot of women and even the strongest women still. I mean, you know, studies have shown that nowadays a lot of these high performing women that are executives, advanced degrees, they can't find a partner. Why? Because women are outperforming men nowadays in terms of, of like uh, education and career. And women still want a, a man that can match their strength. And so all of a sudden they're looking around going, all the single men out here, you know, maybe have a high school education. I've got an MBA and they still want a man that can match their strength. So even the, the, the modern evolved woman still has that part of her evolution she wants a strong man. She doesn't want a weak man. She doesn't want a passively pleasing, go along to get along kind of guy. Even if maybe she treats the guys like that, that's not what they really want in general. Again, I'm making generalizations about some of this, but that's what I think that dynamic is. So when a guy is using nice guy seduction, trying to be passively pleasing to get a woman to approve of him, Yes, he will end up in the friend zone. She will call him up to talk about her problems. She will say, oh, I can't pay my car payment this month. She will, you know, do all these things. And, 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 and if he's stupid enough to do all of that, thinking it's going to get him laid, that's on him. That's not her fault. That's his fault. That's his issue. Yeah. And I've got two thoughts that immediately kind of come to my mind. What you were saying there is, you know, many women say, I, I've heard, heard this in conversations, you know, I, I can't understand why I'm attracted to, to this person. You know, let's say that he's a drug dealer. Um, what I come to... to that happens. That, I that, dated that, a woman. I dated a woman <laughs> for a few years. She said, you know, when I was using crack cocaine, I thought, oh, I know, I'll date my drug dealer. That way I have steady flow of crack. So they do it. They, 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 they get involved with men in prison, murderers. Yeah. And we guys go, I don't understand that. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. And it's not the case. I, I really believe that it's not the case that they genuinely want someone that deals crack cocaine. 
But if they want the traits, the confidence of someone, that kind of the, the willingness to take risks, these sorts of things. But you can work a, a very normal, uh, you know, societally beneficial job, but mirroring some traits, not all. Oh, so you don't have to be a drug dealer. You don't have to be a drug dealer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be. But the other thing that comes to my mind is I had a conversation, and I think this is going to tie in. I spoke to Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book Influence. Um, he's a very, very well-known uh, psychologist. He was even on Barack Obama's um, – he was an advisor to Barack Obama okay. for some sort of psychology uh, stuff. And uh, I remember Cialdini told me about what he called the Benjamin Franklin effect. Um, and what this effect is, for a long time, people thought that if I wanted you to like me, I would turn up at your house. I would, you know, cook you a steak dinner. I would do everything for you. And that was how people thought they could get someone to like them. He said, but what Benjamin Franklin was a master of doing was getting people to like him by getting them yeah. to do something for him. And what actually happens is, is the opposite is when you do something for me, that makes you like me more. Um, so it, that, that was what was coming to my mind as you were describing it, that kind of paradox. Yeah. And the, 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 there's a psychology to it that makes sense. I've, I've been teaching that thing. In fact, I'm, I'm right now, I'm leading a program. I've got 24 men in a program right now. Um, focusing on what I call positive emotional tension, how to live in the world and interact with women in ways that activates this kind of attraction that we're taught that the bad boys have, the bad boy attraction. Mm. And I made a post on the forum just like a week ago where I talked about that Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, dynamic. Because again, the nice guys, nice guy seduction, seduction, I'll do things for you. I'll give you things and you'll appreciate me. You'll, you'll, you'll want me. You'll, 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 you'll want to give back one of the covert contracts of the nice guy syndrome is if I meet your needs without you having to ask, then you'll meet my needs without me having to ask. But as I told the guys in this program, that, that creates no emotional tension for the woman. For you to give, just give her something, it just creates entitlement. It doesn't create any kind of emotional energized connection. But yes, when, 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 like, for example, I tell guys, when I was dating, instead of, you know, offering to buy women drinks, I'd say, well, hey, buy me a drink. I said, you buy me the first drink, and if you want to hang out with me, I'll buy the rest of them the rest of the night. And so I'd, I'd have her buy me a drink first, right, to see if, if, number one, she had enough incentive to plop down five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, you know, to just hang with me. And if, if she couldn't even pull out five or 10 bucks out of her purse, why am I going to plop down money to buy her drinks? Right. So the, the thing was, I got her doing something for me. Right. And then I just, I'll buy the rest of the drinks the rest of the night, but you buy the first one. So it was a test, but what happens with that Benjamin Franklin effect, the mind, the human mind wants consistency. So if you, if you get someone to do something for you, and especially an enemy, so that's what Benjamin Frank, he'd get the people that were not on his side to do something for him. And now if you're doing something for somebody, your brain wants emotional consistency. It doesn't, it doesn't like emotional or intellectual uh, distortion or, 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 or um, the word's not coming to mind. Uh, okay, it'll come back to me. Inconsistencies. So, inconsistency yeah. and, and this is cognitive distortion. It right. wants a consistency. So the mind's thinking, I'm doing this thing for this person. I He must be a good person or mm. I must like him or I must value him. The mind will think up an excuse, a reason why I'm doing something. I, I, I actually think he's kind of a dick and I don't, but you know, here I am, I'm doing something for him. So maybe he isn't such a dick. But when you're doing stuff for them, they can keep thinking you're a dick all day long because, you know, the mind doesn't need any kind of even no matter how much you do for them. If they think you're a dick, you can you, you can give to them all day long and it's not going to change anything. So, yeah, there's a psychological dynamic there around the mind wanting that that kind of consistency. And again, the, the men I work with think, well, I'll just do all these nice things for these people and then they'll do nice things. They'll, they'll want me. They'll like me. They'll love me. They'll want to get naked with me. They'll give back to me. And the truth is they tend to just keep taking and not know there was a covert contract, not know that we even expected them to give anything back or that we expected them to like us. Kind of, kind of like the, the average nice guy, if he finally gets up the nerve, if he's been in the friend zone for a while with a woman that he's been crushing about forever, 
but never touches her, never makes a move, never initiates, never asks her out on a real date. And if he does like ask her out on a date or say, you know, I, I really like you. I want you to be my girlfriend, whatever. Most will not be that direct, but you know, they'll, they'll ask her out on a date and the woman will go, what? Me? You? Go on a date? Oh, I, I never thought of you in that way. I, I, I couldn't do that. That would ruin our great friendship in which you listen to me talk about my problems all the time and make my car payment. And I don't have to give anything back. Why would I, you know, why would I become your girlfriend? <laughs> there might be something required of me then, but is, is, you know, the more you do for some, somebody, the less they have to like you or, or even feel, you know, that, that you're, that you're of value other than to keep doing things for them. That's all. There's a frightening statistic out there um, that was published recently in a general social survey. And this survey found that in the last 12 months, 28% of men and 18% of women aged between 18 to 30 had not had sex in the last 12 months. Now, that's a pretty staggering statistic, mm -hmm. you know, almost one in three men. Um what do you think is is perhaps behind that? All right, I, I I've seen those kind of surveys, and, and I remember seeing a survey like that maybe two or three years ago, and and another survey a little bit different but similar came out around the same time, and the two surveys, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to misquote the statistics, but yeah, what what you said, um, but one of them was that. I think it was just reporting on North America. So primarily U.S., Canada, and I live in Mexico, which is technically North America as well. But for the first time, I, mean, I think they're mainly surveying uh, Americans and Canadians. For the first time in recorded history, since they've tracked these kind of statistics, over half of the population, 35 years old and younger, reported not being in relationship. Right? single or however they identified, they were did not say, I'm in relationship. I'm boyfriend, girlfriend, I'm married, whatever. Thir over 50% of, of men and women, 35 years and older. And then I saw a similar statistic to what you're talking about, that some significant statistic of, of young, I saw them probably around the men, young men report not having had sex in the last year. And, you know, if you, th you think about it, Mother Nature really wants young men to be, and young women, to be having sex. You know, it doesn't want people, my age. Mother Nature doesn't want me having sex. You know, my, 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 my genes, are, you know, my, my chromosomes are broken. You know, they're, they, they, they got problems, you know. And, and so, you know, young, young men, their, their sex drive is at a peak from about 16 to about 25. It actually starts declining about 25, even though we might think it, but it, the libido, the testosterone begins declining. So the, the very people that should be having the most sex are reporting not having sex. So here's my thought. This is my opinion on what ca what's causing that 50% of 35 and younger, not in relationship, significant percentages of men and women, um, but the, it's higher for men that, that uh, you know, 25 and under have not had sex in the last year. And this may sound a little bit ironic and paradoxical, but kind of like the Ben, ben Franklin effect is paradoxical. Uh, I blame that on hookup culture. Swipe right. Think about it. Um, Bill Maher did uh, just about two weeks ago, a friend sent this to me. Bill Maher did his you know, new rules episode on swipe right. And he said, it's time to get rid of it. He said, you know, it serves men because we're lazy, but women, he said, it doesn't serve you at all. Right. But here's the deal. You know, men can go to pick up boot camps. They've got apps on their phone that, you know, they can swipe right. The women are swiping right. Um, you know, people can get in and out of relationship easily. People are waiting longer. You know, you, you think that this hookup culture with all the technology, whether it's, you know, online dating sites, apps on our phones, you know, men out there using pickup skills, red pill skills, you know, Andrew Tate skills, you know, all, all this stuff, you think people be ended up in a relationship and would be getting laid. You think at least that would be happening. But I think it is actually having the very opposite effect, because why would anybody settle down, man or woman, settle down to just one person if, hey, you know, and, and what I see in men, for example, I'll, I'll talk about men and women separately, but in men, the issue we guys have 
is that, you know, 100% of us guys want the same 10% of the women, right? We, we, you know, I hear guys, especially coming up kind of red pill kind of community. I want a quality woman. I go, what does that really mean? Like she's intelligent, she's generous, she can communicate. No, hot. I, I, want, I want young, I want hot, I want sexy. So 100% of the guys are all targeting 10% of the women, all right? So that means most of the men are not going to get the woman they're trying to get, which usually for most men means they don't get any woman. I've had men tell me, you know, unless a woman's a 10, I'm not going to date her. And I go, that's a great recipe for staying home every night in your mom's basement, you know, jacking off to porn on the internet. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of like saying, unless I can drive a Bentley, I'm not going to drive yeah. at all. And I tell them, hey, you, you can fucking start with a Honda Civic, you know, build up to a Honda Accord. Maybe get to an Acura, you know, maybe, maybe a BMW. But, you know, you don't start out with a Bentley. You, 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 you learn to drive and then you develop skills. And so it takes skills to get a quality woman just because you want her because she looks like the women you've been looking at porn since you were 12. Doesn't mean you got the skill set that she's going to even pay any attention to you. Right. So if you got 100 percent of the men all targeting the same 10 percent of the women and, you know, the men all had this their ego involved. I want this young, hot thing so I can feel good about myself and all my buddies will go, oh, man, look at him. He's got that young, hot thing, which often leads to them not having any woman because the young, hot things are in high demand and only a few of the guys actually get access to them. Right. That's what I think is happening with the guys. Over here with the women, again, I'm making generalizations and, and, you know, these are opinions, but over here with the women is that there's a part of human evolution that the female needs attention that, because they would die in, you know, in tribal times if they didn't have attention, if they couldn't procreate, if they didn't get fed. And so there's, there's part of, of the feminine that, that wants attention and needs attention. So let's say you're a woman. And you get on these swipe right apps and, and you know, maybe, maybe you get on Bumble or whatever the one is that women kind of have more control over. And, and all of a sudden, you got 20, 25, 50, 100 men a day all contacting you. And you're going, oh, man, I'm on crack. This is amazing. I got constant attention from, you know, I got. Con and so what incentive do these women have to go get to know one guy well? and find out who he is, and get into a deeper relationship, connected relationship. Now, when I was dating 15 plus years ago, the, the swipe right apps didn't exist, but I, I was on Match.com. And what I noticed, almost every woman I met on Match.com, she had so many men contacting her every day, that I found that, that none of them ever wanted to close the lid on that perpetual toy box, right? They, they, they wanted to leave the lid open. If I just start dating one guy and take down my profile, I won't get constant daily attention from lots of men that want to buy me stuff and take me out to nice dinners and on nice trips. So they don't close the lid. So they don't ever get all in with just one guy and give it a go and see if, if, if this is the guy that they want to be with. So again, I'm making pretty broad generalizations but if those two things is what's been, you know, fostered by, by hookup culture, it makes sense to me why very few people report being in a relationship. And ironically, so few people are actually getting laid. You'd think everybody that wanted to be in a relationship could be, and everybody that wanted to get laid could. But apparently that's not happening. So that's my theory for what it's worth. That I, I, I blame it on hookup culture. Where, you know, you actually don't have to get out there and meet people and get to know them and kind of work at being a decent person and, you know, kind of work at getting to know somebody. You can just move on to the next one, move on to the next one, move on to the next one. That's easy. Again, that, that's, that, that's that hanging out in the nursery mentality that, you know, since I mainly work with men, um, you know, that so many men have. Well, I just want to keep swiping right till I, I get some hottie and, uh, you know, don't have to worry about getting rejected, looking foolish, or having to actually get out of the house and work at having a social interaction with somebody. So, right. <laughs> again, that's my theory on on why those statistics are. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a very valid theory, and I viewed a number of studies into what a psychologist call this paradox of choice. The more choices that you have ironically the less likely you are to make a decision and also yeah the less happy that you are when you do make a decision 
that's such a good point. That, that really sums up everything I just said. If you have unlimited choice, you don't pick. And if you do pick one, you can still look around and go, and guys will do this. If they do get a girlfriend, they have that fear of missing out. What if somebody hotter comes along? What if somebody cuter? Or if I'm monogamous to this girl, I can't, I can't go have sex with that one. You know, and, and so yeah, all of a sudden, guys, you're going, well, if I pick one, I'll be dis I'll, I'm inherently dissatisfied because that means I can't pick all the others that still look pretty good to me. When I was growing up 16, 17, I was hopeless with women. I was totally, totally hopeless with women. Welcome to the club. Most Welcome men to are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was clueless. And I think that for men... You, you, you need to learn to play rugby. That's the answer. You need to learn to play rugby or sell crack yeah. cocaine. <laughs> yeah, sell crack cocaine or play rugby. One of the two. <laughs> or do both. I'd be, I'd be That's perfect. That's ideal. Right. <laughs> um, so when kind of I was growing up, a lot of people were talking about, a lot of men my age that were kind of in similar things. They were talking about, for instance, reading neil strauss the game yeah. or they were talking about other books and one of the reasons why i really wanted to bring you on is because i love the message that you put out there about being authentic um a lot of your work i find actually kind of hints at spiritual components in terms of becoming a better man being more honest being more aesthetic setting boundaries being honest these are the messages the overarching themes that i get from you but from a lot of other people within kind of um, that, that are trying to help men in that space. I talked about also that there seems to be a lot of, for instance, heartbreak, dare I say, in the, the red pill community. A lot of the messages I read, there, there seems to be kind of a lot of pain from the message. And to me, I see that as the same side of the coin as the nice guy syndrome. People with dysfunctional relationships with women. Do you get that same idea, perhaps, or do you have a different view? Yeah, you know, I there's so many, so many options out there for men to get information to to, to make their lives better. Like I said, I'm I, I don't think we need to become better or different. I think we just need to become more ourselves to embrace all of who we are and mm -hmm. and and to love all of who we are. And mm -hmm. there's I guess that spiritual aspect. Yeah. When I first started working on my nice guy syndrome before I knew to call it nice guy syndrome, right? There was not that many options out there. I started in a 12-step group for sex addicts and quickly found out I wasn't having enough sex to qualify as a sex addict. But <laughs> it was all guys. And for the first time in my life, I just started revealing me, revealing my toxic shame and just, you know, telling things I never told anybody. And that was so liberating. And then I got I, I started working with a therapist and then I got into a men's group. And and I'm 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 still in a men's program today. I've been in the same program for five years because it keeps me connected to men and it keeps challenging me and it helps me keep growing and and just you know live up to my full potential and, and have the kind of relationship that, that that I want. So, but when I started my recovery, there was not that much there. About all there was, at least I ran into 30 years ago, was like. Iron John, Robert Bly, you know, go out in the in the woods and talking stick and beat a drum and say, oh, and I did some of that. And it was cool because it was a way to connect with men. Um, it wasn't particularly empowering and didn't really help me deal with much of anything in my life. Um, but, you know, the book Iron John, I absolutely love. I remember the first time I read it thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is kind of, you know, kind of woo-woo. And then I, I, I do quote Robert Bly a couple of times in No More Mr. Nice Guy. And then I remember reading Iron John again after I'd written No More Mr. Nice Guy, maybe a few years later, I read it again and I go, oh, this is actually pretty good. And it's talking about the same thing I'm talking about. So, you know, he just does it in a very different way, but that's all there was. Nowadays, there are so many men's programs, so, you know, coming from so many different uh, points of views and, and, you know, just, got, just kind of throwing and kind of come at this from a, a little different angle. Mm. When I went on my book tour 20 years ago this month, um, you know, went to several cities, did interviews on television, local interviews, newspaper interviews, radio interviews. And a lot of the interviewers at that time said, Robert, do you, do you think there's going to be a worldwide men's movement like, you know, worldwide women's movement like feminism? Mm. And I said, no, I said, not really. I said, I don't think there's one unifying issue that will bring men together. And I don't know that there'd be one unifying issue that the women of the world 
will get behind it and push for this thing as well. Now, I was right and I was wrong, at least in my opinion. I was right that I don't know that there was like this one unifying thing that's going to bring all men together. You know, the closest thing I could think of was like parenting rights for fathers, you know, for dads that through divorce and stuff like that. Because at that time, the courts gave all the rights and privileges to the mothers and the fathers. The mothers could take the kids away from the dad. No problem. That's changed to some degree, depending where you are, I imagine. But I was wrong in that what I do see happening, and, and maybe primarily because of the Internet is that men are out there seeking something. Now, they may not know what it is they're seeking or, or how to go look for it. But what I think they're really seeking is connection with men and tribe and masculine initiation to, 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 to help them deal with the stuff they're struggling with in life. Now, I think men come to this through a lot of different ways. They may go to you know a, a pickup boot camp you know, a, a Neil Strauss, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, they may go to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They may go to martial arts. They may join, you know, a, a divorce discussion group at their church. Um, they, they may come, you know, through the kind of a data-data, the consciousness, uh, yogic uh, way of looking at things. Um, you know, they may come through red pill. They may come through lots of different ways. And what I think they're really looking for is connection with men, and so what's happening is once men start connecting with men, whether it's through Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, you know, whatever, all of a sudden now there's enough good books out there. There's enough material on the Internet. There's men sharing information with men. And I actually do see whether we call this, you know, male empowerment, which I know that that scares the feminists. They don't want to empower males. We've had all the power, right? We got to take the power away from men. But really, I think it, it makes for better men if we're truly powerful, then we're not manipulative, we're not, we're not going to be abusive, we're not controlling, we're, we're authentically powerful in our own strength, and we're not trying to you know, impose that on anybody else. Now, some of the stuff out there, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of, I'm not in love with. You know, for example, you know, I, I've spoken at Red Pill conferences, and you know, the, men, the men, a lot of men were nice guys, they'd read my book. Um, and, you know, th there's a lot of principles that make sense. But the one thing that I don't love about that, that, that I spoke, speak openly about this, I even said that when I spoke at the conference, is I don't like this paranoia, them against us, us against them, yeah. that the women are all out to get us. They're, they're all, you know, the, this hypergamy thing, that they're, that they're all wired to come take everything from us, you know. I, I actually don't believe women are actually wired for hypergamy. I know there's gold diggers out there, but it takes a really stupid man for a gold digger to have success. You know, they're not going to succeed unless, you know, some stupid guy is, you know, like, oh, sure, sure. I'll give you everything you want. And I don't think most women actually have the, the, uh, the intelligence, the long-term planning or the Machiavellian personality to go out and be hypergamy, you know, uh, to practice hypergamy. So, there's a lot of bringing a lot of paranoia in that. And what's interesting is many of the red pill writers are warning men against all the women. Many of them are married. You know, mm. <laughs> Rolo Tomasi is married, right? Has a daughter, right? Uh, and Rolo Tomasi isn't his real name, you know? So there's this paranoia, which I don't love, okay? Are some of the principles sound? Yeah, a lot of the principles are a lot like what, what I might teach as well. But I don't like that us against them. And I don't like this, let's manipulate women to get what we want and then, you know, discard them. I, I, I'm just much more, let's be authentic, let's be real. Uh, and I, that doesn't mean we have to, you know, get into long-term monogamous relationships. I work with a lot of guys that are polyamorous, that are in open, but they, they tell the woman the first time they meet her, I'm polyamorous. You know, I don't do monogamy. They're, they're open, they're upfront, they're honest about it. And a lot of women actually, you know, have no problem with that, surprisingly. You know, a lot of nice guys think, oh, what woman would, you know. So, but there's something about being honest and authentic and truthful. What you see is what you get, nothing hidden, nothing half-assed, that I think makes us inherently attractive. So, yes, there's a lot of stuff on the internet I don't love. But what I do like is that the internet has provided a place for, for podcasts like yours. I mean, I, I do a lot of interviews like this. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's blogs, there's podcasts, there's books, there's coaching programs. There's, there's just so much out there that did not exist for men 30 years ago. And, and, and that makes me happy.
And I think that benefits men and benefits women. I think it benefits the planet for men to become more conscious, more powerful, um, more honest, more transparent, more masterful. Um, and, and that's that's kind of what I've been working for. And it, it it thrills me to see that happening in today's world. Yeah, man, man, I, I absolutely love that. I totally agree. Um, it was interesting because when you know you kind of mentioned uh neil strauss in there and this was one of the things that i i kind of loved um when i was going through your work is i remember one of the things that kind of strauss talked about in his book was you know the neg and uh yeah. you know this kind of premise about going up to a woman and saying something like you know oh you've got you're, you're, you're cute teeth. for a fat girl, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and it worries me because well, I was one of the, the girls um, that I work with, uh, she spent a lot of time out in Los Angeles. And when I was, I was telling her that, you know, I was going to interview you and she told me, she said that many years ago was that without re really knowing what, what the, the whole community was, mm. was that she was like, oh, many people actually said, similar things yeah. like that to me yeah. you know, and, and i was thinking about the neg and, and i've got two issues with it that i really want to run by with you to kind of get your thoughts on the first one is is that if i go up to a woman and i start off with uh some sort of comment to lower her self-esteem the first premise there is that she is on a higher value than me Yes, that is my first issue with it. My second issue with it is I'm not sure that I would want a woman that I have to lower her self-esteem. <laughs> you, you're too much. Me. You're too much of a conscious thinking guy. You know, you, you, you must be using this this brain. You know, that, that you know, that is that's kind of funny about the woman that lived in Los Angeles, because, you know, I. You know, I, I read, you know, the game, Neil Strauss's book when, when I became single, you know, and listened to a lot of other stuff. And, and actually, again, there, there's some good psychology yeah. in there, of, yeah. you know, and even believe it or not, the neg is actually a variation of that Benjamin Franklin principle we're talking about. Now you're doing something that somebody's going to work to try to get you to like them. Right. That implies that, that you must have value if they're sure. working to get your approval. Right. So it's still that there's still. See, that's the thing. Most of what is out there, whether whether we call it, you know, social biology, you know, whether it's the 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 pickup mentality, red pill, you know, the game, all that, there is psychology to it, or it it, it wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah now, yeah. what happens, or what it appeals to, is is the guys that are lazy that want some kind of quick, you know, and and what to me I never understood about pickup community. They celebrate getting a phone number. Like I got digits, I got a number. You know, she's a former model. I got a big fucking deal. <laughs> I didn't put money in the bank. I didn't even get you laid. You, know, you got a number. Who knows if she? You know, are you going to call her? Who knows if she'll even answer or call you back? But right. yeah, it's kind of like the, the things they put value on. I go, I, I I don't really actually think that's the goal. Just to get a phone number. You know, so you can brag. I got a, I got a Playboy, you know, Playboy Bunny's number. Okay, a big deal. But you know, it was kind of funny that that Neil Strauss um, would prefer to disown that book. Uh, I, I assume he still accepts the royalties on it. I don't know that. Um, but you know, he he wrote another book after that called The Truth, and it was made to look like a Bible. It's white and kind of you know, like a Bible, which I did not actually like that book a lot a lot of people did it's really about going all the way through sexual addiction his own journey of, of just trying to basically take all of this stuff to the extreme and then at the very end of the book um he he came to the conclusion real and this was actually true of the game as well came to the conclusion it's really uh kind of authentic relationship that's really the most important thing and, and then he, in the end of the, of the truth he it was this specific woman that he'd been neglecting all along while he went and did all of this you know trying everything he could under the sun sexually yeah, and he ended up marrying her, and she since, I guess, divorced him and sued him for a lot of money. I, I don't know the whole story, but um, he's not he's not a fan of his own book, The Game. 
because because it really is using you know psychology basically to manipulate people and and you know yeah the storyline was for women in la after a while they heard the same negs the same poll questions who lies more men or women you know blah, blah, blah. you know the, the the every guy out there was 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 you know pimping and peacocking and wearing feathers <laughs> and wild clothes and you know the women the women just start seeing it coming you know with every guy in every club you know was dressed outrageously running the same poll questions and the same negs on them and um th i mean th they're not dumb they, they they do see that you know and and as you said do you really want a woman that would fall for that anyway and but again this was men just looking for that that quick easy answer of, of of trying to get some prize usually trying to get laid but you know the kind of the the vibe i picked up is that a lot of these people doing all that stuff never actually got laid. They're, they're one of those statistics. They don't actually have a girlfriend or get laid, but they got a lot of digits. You know, right. it, it worked to get a phone number. So again, um, there is psychology to it or it wouldn't work. Um, but again, I, I'd rather say, hey, you know, be you, be authentic. Don't hold back, act on impulse, blurt. And you know, guys will say, well, being me hasn't really worked so far with women. And I go, really? How many women have you let see the real you? How many women do you let know how much you masturbate? How, how, how many women do you let see, you know, what, what your insecurities are, what your fears are, um, you know, what scares you, uh, you know, how long you wet your bed, you know, when you were a kid, you know, how many, you know, most of us do not let people see the real us. Mm. And, you know, kind of going back to where we started, you say, you know, a lot of people find my book to really be transformative. And the compliment I get the most, I'll take it as a compliment that I hear the most from interviews, from groups I leave, from programs I do, is guys will say, Robert, I just appreciate how authentic you are. Yeah. You, you'll talk about your struggles. You'll talk about your insecurities. You'll talk about your fears. And men, the men I work with really are drawn to that authenticity. And I, I will often say 30 years ago, nobody would have accused me of being authentic. I was a chameleon. I really was. Oh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to please you, you know, get your approval. That was not attractive. So that kind of authenticity of being real, warts and all, insecurities and all, fuck ups and all, it is that that actually makes us attractive. I mean, Brene Brown has built an empire around vulnerability, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. be vulnerable, be you, it's attractive, it's empowering. And so I'm, I'm just a big fan of, you know, you know, you know, guys will say, well, you know, what, what if I see a woman and, and I want to talk to her? And so why don't you just walk up to her and say, hey, I, I'm an insecure guy and I'm really afraid and I have social anxiety. But I knew if I didn't come talk to you, I'd kick myself and never let myself forget. It. Just go tell her the fucking truth. And, you know, most women would go, that's a breath of fresh air. You didn't neg me. You came and negged yourself, <laughs> you know. But there is something about that authenticity, the real you. That not everybody's going to like you, not everybody's going to be attracted to you, not everybody's going to want to hang out with you, but it is a lot more attractive than being a chameleon, and it's a lot more empowering. So again, you know that I, I just find it it just works better to be real. Sure, sure. And uh, man, I got to say, you know, there's honestly so much of your content that I I really love and I really really connect with, and I know our audience will and. Guys, to the people listening, watching on YouTube, leave us a comment. Tell us what your takeaway is. Um, man, I would love and speak to you. I would speak to you all day if I could, but <laughs> I appreciate the time this is getting on. So, man, tell these guys where they can connect with you. Yeah, you can find me at drglover.com, which is D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. And you know every everything that I've got, my classes, my workshops, my podcasts, my books, all, all of that's on drglover.com. We will link everything in the description. Before I go, the question we sign off all of our podcasts with, what makes a life worth living? That's a good question. Right this moment, I, I would say facing fears. If it scares you, do it. Thank you so much for coming on. Joe, appreciate it. Had a great time. Send me an email. We'll, we'll, we'll book something again. This was fun.